coming together from across the United States. The real issues you don't hear about elsewhere. Focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. To resist bot live. Hey y'all. It is Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. I'm your moderator, Melanie Dion, and this is Resist Bot Live. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. We're here this Sunday, every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you get the notifications when we go live every week. Just go to rs.bot slash video. We make it really easy for you. You can also, if you're listening to us in podcast land, rs.bot slash pod, you can follow the Resist Pot live podcast wherever your favorite podcasts are. Join the conversation by using the hashtag livebotters. So I want to thank you again for joining us. Today, we are going to be following the money. We're talking about Mason, Tennessee, a predominantly black town in Tennessee that is it has a population of about 1500 people. The Ford Motor Company will be building a plant in 2025 that will bring this struggling community a great economic boost for a very struggling community. And after years, 20 years, in fact, of mismanagement and corruption and even arrests for mishandling money and corruption. Now the Tennessee comptroller, Jason Mompower, is threatening this township with taking over economically. They've already stepped in with financial oversight for this town. And the mayor and the vice mayor are speaking on how this definitely seems to be racially motivated, considering that prior to this takeover this year, just within the last month, up until the removal of those those corrupt officials who were white, we're now dealing with Black officials in this predominantly Black town, and they are stepping in to potentially step on the economic advantages or economic boost that this new plant will bring to Mason. So we're going to talk about that and also talk about what responsibility Ford may have in looking at this. So I'm going to start bringing up our regular panelists. First, Christine Liu. Hi, Christine. Hello there. So I am uh, so glad we're talking about this today. I had first mentioned it to the group when I just came across it and, you know, just caught it in my stream on Twitter. And this story immediately led me to think how many other towns are there that are experiencing this in one way or another. And then my mind, because I'm in the private sector, goes to, okay, well, if this is all revolving around the timing of a Ford plant coming in, you would think in the post era of BLM 2020 and all these corporations making these promises to do better and to allocate funding and to be a stand for the community, that this would be actually a great opportunity with the Ford plant moving in to be able to incorporate all those promises on DEI into an example and it's not happening. So then it led me to wonder, why is that? And so this is why we're here and I'm so glad we're talking about it today, Mel. So thanks. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you bringing this um, to our attention because we see these things and when everything is terrible, you're kind of like, oh, another terrible thing. 
But then how many times is this small, terrible thing happening? You brought up a good point. We're dealing with a town of just 1,500 people. It's really easy for that to get lost in the shuffle. So thank you. And we look forward to the conversation that we're going to have today, along with our other friend, Athena Foulet. Hi, Athena. Hey, Mel. Hey, Christine. How's everyone doing today? Great. Great. I'm looking forward to your input on this as well. Absolutely. Just as Christine was mentioning and you, this idea that we stumbled across this. It's just by happenstance. So it's likely somebody's PR spin let this leak somehow or, or got away from them. And yet when you look at so many of our policies and so many things that happen, you just got to wonder how much else is out there. And I, I completely agree. This is exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast. We want to shed light on these issues that aren't getting that kind of media attention and reinforcing this continued idea that we have to stay, I don't want to sound like tin hattie, but we have to stay vigilant. We have to stay aware and we have to hold folks accountable across all from local to federal. And so these conversations are very important. I look forward to learning more because I as well have this, some kind of resistance fatigue, right? We're like the last four years of the Trump administration was like, drinking from a fire hose of all the awful and what can we focus on and what can we what will we address this time who will we write about this so i think the lesson in that is to keep on and continue to find these messages and keep the general awareness up that we should always follow up and see where some of these initiatives are going a year or two down the road because as as we see if if they're not looking they're going to, corporations are going to try to get away with whatever they can. And when you think about what after George Floyd and even like with Ford, their DEI initiative started back in 2018. What are your lips saying and what are your hands doing? And are those things working in tandem? I think that's the question that goes, especially with something like where Ford is a major player in this and, and arguably the motivation behind this takeover in Mason. So what, A, are Ford's responsibilities, and B, what is Ford actually doing? What does their DE&I actually look like? And not only Ford, not just to single them out, but other companies. Where, what is happening when the rubber meets the road? Are you just saying this because this is the cool thing, or are there actual changes that we can see? So our guest today is somebody who really keeps a, an intense look on that, and I'm so excited to have her join us. We're joined today by Kiana Patterson. Hi, Kiana. Hey, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. Glad to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you talk a little bit about, I always like to get into the who you are, what you do, and how this topic factors into A, your professional life, and then your personal outlook? Uh, really great question. I think shockingly, people will be surprised to know that I'm a former public school teacher here in Los Angeles. And I say that because that has become the basis for much of the work that I've gone on to do after I stopped being an educator. I went on to, to work in the tech sector, and now I find myself as an investor, much like Christine, investing at the intersection of really true community power and development to make people's lives better and the planet better. And I, I know that can be somewhat seemingly difficult as, as an investor, but I think it is truly possible. 
and my sort of vantage point of being an educator, being an anthropology major, coming up the sort of ranks in a very non-traditional sense sort of frames everything that I do, my outlook on the world, and how I look at the past as well. And so all of this work definitely coincides with what I believe to be the path forward, which is really understanding true community power. How do we as individuals collectively do the right thing and and maybe not necessarily abdicate uh, the responsibility and the change that we want to see with companies, but how do we as individuals in a community of people want and see a better pathway forward? Absolutely. When we're looking at these things, we all have those signs that we look for on if a company is walking the talk. And since Ford is a central part of the discussion today, I took a look just at their DNI website. I think the thing that jumped out to me, I, I always look at who's there, what's there, what are you showing me when you're telling me that you're diverse? There were zero black faces on their diversity inclusion page. There was reference to disability, but all of the words were right on a page that was predominantly white. It speaks on where the focus is and and what we're looking at. And it makes the silence regarding this issue in Mason, for me, much louder. And not only when I say no Black faces, I don't remember seeing a particularly large amount of non-white faces either. One of the things that when brought out about what they've done, what Ford has done since 2018 in the 4,000 jobs that they've added since those 2018 initiatives, 9.8% of those went to Black people. That was where the focus lied there. And it's something to consider when you think about a lot of this is in Detroit. <laughs> so so there, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a matter of the people not being there. It's still, what is your focus? Where are you, where are the actual funds going? Where's the actual energy going? Is that energy going to trans people? Like how much of that is going to trans people? How much of that is going to people with physical disabilities? How much of that is going to mental health? All of these things factor and it needs to be it needs to be shown. It's not just putting a pretty picture out there. But when you have always had marginalized people in the back, the onus is on you to make sure that you're pushing them to the front more. So when that's absent on your DNI, DE&I page, it's giving me pause. Athena, can you talk a bit, because you talked about something that I noticed as well about where the DE&I is focused. Can you talk a little bit about what you saw and how that resonated with you? Sure. So some of the work that I do in my real life is DNI in higher education. So working to ensure that almost like an academic, from an academic standpoint, what, how do you define that and what does that look like? And you bring up some good points about Ford and that who they are as a company and what their history is and, and how that shapes a lot of what diversity will look like for them versus what diversity might look like for a company either somewhere else in the United States or uh, with a different history. And so if you visit the Ford's D-E-N-I website, they rightfully focus on women as a means of diversity, because I would imagine that that car industry and that field might may be predominantly men. I might be speaking out of tune here. I, I don't know. But I would make assumptions that that industry was probably uh, long established and functional through the work and contributions of male identifying people. So when you look at their site, there is a spot specifically about the women at Ford. And as 
Christine sort of pointed out earlier, there, there are these check boxes. So it's like, great, women, put them on this page. We're diverse without really going through that further step of really exploring what diversity is, what inclusion is, and what equity is. So in Ford's case, briefly looking at what they're looking at, they are getting, they're sort of scratching the surface for that. But I think what's happening problematically in the example that we're going to talk about today is just how corporations and politics, how much of an influence these corporations have in the politics of particular regions, especially rural regions, when they have such a powerful voice to leverage in terms of funding and policy when it comes to local jurisdictions. And one of the things that that makes this interesting or made it interesting for me about Ford was Ford was one of the first when we talk about racial equity. Ford was one of the first, if not the first, company to really hire Black people in large numbers. And we're talking back in 1920. Before this, was, there was the major push for women in the workforce. We were looking at racial inclusion. And he hired thousands of Black men back in 1920, which was huge. So companies can't, though, rely on these decades-old jumps and then it's sort of like the old, well, you know, Republicans freed the slaves. It's like, that's very great that you did this one thing years ago. But, you know, the ball is still moving. Society is still evolving. And inclusion is not finite as society changes, as, you know, people, marginalized people speak out more, as we have, as we gain greater awareness. That means those changes also need to be made on higher levels. It's not just enough to um, rest on our laurels. But I want to talk to you, Kiana, a bit. When you look at things like this, what are you looking at in terms of comparing if the walk matches the talk? What are the, the key indicators for you that either get your support or raise your red flags? I think that one thing that I sort of look for in language and whether or not the sort of talk and walk match up is one in language. For most of us of color and, and those of us who are marginalized, we are we have largely been minoritized. So think about women. We've never been a minority, right, in the grand scheme of the society itself. But we have been minoritized in a way that we aren't on we don't represent board seats. We are not in the C-suite of companies. That isn't by osmosis. That's because we've been systematically blocked from those type of roles, those kinds of positions of power. That isn't because we are fundamentally a minority. We are not. We have been minoritized. And so I think one of for me is like that using that language is really important. And then this component for me has really been thinking about, and maybe because of the work that Athena is doing, I think that we have to look at what are the structures that prevented people and that still prevent people from accessing opportunity, whatever that is. And so for me, I think about the conversation about pipeline. So a lot of companies you know, when they started making these promises and they were public about these things, the first thing that they did was they started like donating money to STEM programs in the K-12 system. They sort of started saying, we need to like shore up education uh, so that kids can access computer science. And while I think that is great, I think that's a good thing. It For me, it fundamentally actually it skirted the actual challenge that I saw, which is you are not currently hiring the people who have been minoritized, right? Who are in a position to take those jobs today, 
right? So it just totally ignored all the minoritized black people, brown people, everybody who's gone to college, who gotten CS degrees. It totally ignored all of the people who have the prerequisite skills to take those jobs, but they cannot get into the funnel. It ignores everyone who is currently underpaid, underemployed. And those for me are the key sort of factors. If if a person was using that kind of language, hey, I want to look at everybody who's underpaid in my company. I want to look at what underemployment actually looks like in my city or region that I'm hiring from. And now given remote work, now it, it doesn't matter where you are. So I think fundamentally for me, that's where I have been pushing back on this conversation around DNI initiatives simply because it ignores the people who had already gone to college. If that's if that was the road that you needed to go down to get that particular job, if you needed to get an MBA, but it couldn't be just an MBA, you had to get an MBA from a particular school. And then the last point is thinking really about college as an access point but not all college is equal and not all students understood. And certainly I didn't as a first generation college student, didn't really understand that there was social capital that I was supposed to be acquiring while I was in college and how fundamentally that was likely more important than the actual paper degree that I have on my wall today. And that because I was a first generation college student, had no social capital, did not understand the power of being in the right classes with the right professors who had the certain recruiters and headhunters coming to their classes and recruiting from them. Like I didn't understand that, right? And so when I, my goal was to graduate from college. My goal should have also been to understand social capital in a way that landed me the type of job that could have put me on a different trajectory. And that's not to say the trajectory that I've been on has been a bad one. It would have been different if I would have understood social capital. So I think that I'm not a researcher, but if we thought about these things more holistically in a much more broader way, then we would actually be able to get at the root of some of the core issues and come up with really meaningful solutions to the problems that we face, which we know are systemic. And they are not, you cannot put a Band-Aid on these problems. They are deep and they are wide and we need to come up with solutions that are equally as deep and wide. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'm glad you mentioned that because there's this push to get people in the door, to get students in the door, to get bodies in the door. We've got Black women, we've got people with disabilities, but how are they treated once they get there? Do they have the tools that they need? What you mentioned about that social capital, your social capital is not the same as someone who is three generations deep into into your university whose parents may have gone to undergrad with your professor and those type of things. Like this is, these are those intangibles that a lot of us, when we're dealing with being a first or at best second generation college students, have no idea to eat. We don't know what we don't know. People don't know what they don't know. And so when that's not shared, who is the responsibility sitting on? Who is falling short here? One of the things when we talk about Ford's responsibility, this isn't something I'm not asking for something, you know, pie in the sky, because when there were problems or issues with COVID-19 in Tennessee, Ford spoke up, Ford and other businesses, they spoke up. And these were like Republican-led rollbacks. And Ford spoke up and had something to say. And there was a back down on that. So it's not 
something that they have not done before. So that also makes the lack of action and statement on Ford's part concerning. I think there's a question about community. Who are we in community with, right? If we have large corporations who are domiciled in regions and cities and states, they are major employers, right? They are major landowners. They are major thought leaders and they can shift policy. They can push decisions. They can transform entire communities. Are they truly in community with us as individuals? And I think that's the part that we have to understand. So what is the responsibility of a corporation who is in community, maybe just by proximity, maybe we don't have a shared understanding or a belief even on what that community is, but by proximity, we are in community with these corporations. What is their responsibility to the community? And I think that's the core thing that we have to start asking from the standpoint of what will benefit shareholders. I fundamentally believe that us if we're in community with someone who has such a large stake, regardless if I own stock in that company or not, I'm a shareholder in the well-being of this community. What? And so my question is, what does that truly mean? And what is the responsibility of me as an individual? And what is the responsibility of a corporation, like you said, Mel, to speak out, right? To have an opinion, to take a position on something, right? And so often corporations cannot or will not make a stance, even if it's the right thing to do, because they think about like, what's gonna happen to our stock price? What's going to happen when NASDAQ opens up tomorrow morning? We have to understand what becomes a priority of a company and and where you are essentially on that ladder, right? Where is community? Where's the well-being of that community on the ladder of importance and priority? And when we understand that and we have a clear vision and it's transparent about that, then we know how we can and should maneuver, right? And then what then collective power that we could take and actions that we can take that can change that dynamic. But I think that we have to understand that fully. Yeah. And this is one of those reasons where people always get a little hesitant when they hear the word ally, allyship, allies. Yeah, I'm an ally. I'm I'm here for you. But are you a partner? Are you going to make sure, are you going to stand in the gap for me when something like this happens? It's great to toss money at a problem. Very nice because a lot of these communities absolutely need money. So it's not a matter of, oh, no, don't send money. Open that purse. Absolutely. But also there's more than that. Because it's not just money that we're missing. As you mentioned before, it's the social capital. It's the actual partnership where someone should know, like there should be something where Tennessee should know, okay, you can't come for this town. This is who we're working with. You can't come for them. And when that's not there, that's noticed. It gets noticed on who this is done for, who and and, and how it's, what the procedure is. And the, getting back to, to Mason, this is not the first town that has been taken over where this has happened before. It's not that this is the first thing that's happening, but what the difference here and the way, and even the comptroller called it unprecedented, they actually sent letters to people in the township asking that they push officials to dissolve the charter. 
And what happens when the town, if the town were to dissolve the charter, that meant all the funds that would have gone to build up this struggling black town, that's, I think, that is 72, not I think it's 72% black, would now go to Tipton County, which is 75% white. There was Jellicoe, Tennessee. They were also taken over, but the vice mayor of Mason brought out how that their procedure was completely different. And it was a way of helping them so that they could get back on their feet, so that they could become economically viable. Not this threat. And there was never a request to dissolve the charter. This has not been asked for before. So in looking at that, in hearing that, if I'm hearing that as resident of New Orleans, Louisiana, who has no investment background, I'm certain that Ford should be doing their due diligence and aware of it as well. Yeah, totally. Companies don't choose to locate a large manufacturing facility in a city, in a town without a whole lot of due diligence. There would have been a ton of cities or towns on a list, right? And they chose that particular region for a lot of reasons. And so, no, they don't go into that world blindly. It's not like throwing spaghetti on a map and wherever the noodle sticks, that's where they <laughs> end up putting, you know, a new manufacturing plant. There's a lot of decisions made into this and it's an investment. And you understand, you have to have a really good understanding of what is going to re- be the return on your investment that you put out from the building up the plant to building up the workforce, all the kinds of things that are going to go into that. And so I think they are well aware of the demographics of this town. They were well aware of the financial state this uh, town was in. They would have been had listening sessions, talking sessions prior to choosing this location. So it, it tells me like, no, they had to have known everything and still chose that town. And so then once they did choose it, then suddenly people want to dissolve the charter, which I think obviously is telling. And we're not talking nickels and dimes. This no. is a $5.8 billion project and, and it's going to be huge. It's going to be 3,600 acres and it's looking to bring 6,000 jobs into this small community. And there's going to be a lot of beyond that, right? So when you know when you do that, there's going to be more housing. There's going to be, they would have to attract more people. There's not enough people in that town right now. So there's got to be infrastructure, transportation. There's got to be schools. There's got to, there's a ton of things that happen in this region that's going to have enormous impact on this community, whether you work at the plant or you work at something that is in support of the plant restaurants, business owners, all kinds of things, schools, you'll need more teachers, you'll need a, a, a bigger hospital. There's tons of things that are going to happen. And we're all in who's in, like I said, who's in community is going to be a really important thing to prioritize. It looks bad. It's not something yeah. that we can just ignore because America has a history of when it sees people of color, when it sees marginalized people progressing, it's got to get its chunk. There has to be their chunk. We learned about, a lot of us learned about the Tulsa massacre in 1920. We just learned, a lot of us learned about that as adults. Like we know what happens when there is progress. When you're dealing with a country, a state that has this type of poor history with Black people specifically. Something like this can't be ignored and is not being ignored. The NAACP just yesterday actually helped filed suit for violation of the Equal Protection Clause. It's not that 
this should be happening. Things are not going in the way that they should normally go. I've gone on a lot and I'd love to hear a little more from Christine and or Athena on this. <laughs> Sorry, but this is something that really kind of got my goat once I started digging into it, obviously. But I wasn't sure if either one of you had uh, any comments on it. So what was on my mind and, and what remains on my mind is just letting people know that this is just the start. Because if you look at the economic emphasis of uh, reshoring, they call it, bringing jobs back to the U.S., right? Politicians talk a big game about that. That's going to involve more investment into towns like this. That's going to involve incentives tax-wise and whatever have you to large corporations so the politicians get that checkbox and that win and they can say we brought another ford plant to this state and to this this city and things like that so it's only going to accelerate because we have this situation in the u.s where in the next several years there is actually going to be a big focus on manufacturing again build back better, things like that. And so my biggest concern, and I'm so glad we're addressing this now, is there are going to be more situations like we see in Tennessee, unless, you know, and I'll dovetail that over to Athena, unless we all collectively pay attention and hold people accountable and hold corporations accountable. Absolutely. The other thing about it, I look at, like I live, I, y'all know I'm a New Orleans East resident, and, and I talk a lot about the needs we have, the unmet needs we have, very recently, Anthony Mackie, is, it was announced that he's going to be building a huge studio, right? Five minutes from where I live. Huge deal. But when we when you look at that, the other thing that I have to look at for me as a New Orleans East resident, but also like places like Mason, are you going to ensure that this place is still livable for the existing residents? Because the other thing that happens when we get these economic benefits is the first people that get pushed out are the marginalized people that helped build this in the first place? Will it still be livable? Will it still be affordable? What are the obligations there and how will these corporations be meeting those obligations? What is the pay going to look like for these residents that are you going to make sure that as with this added infrastructure that's going to come with this plant? Because as uh, Kiana brought out, 6,000 jobs, town of 1,500 people, there's absolutely a gap there so what are you going to do to ensure that the people who have been working and, and doing their best to keep this town viable, what are you doing to ensure that th this will still be livable for them? This is the part, one of the things you know every week we typically have petitions. And this is one of those cases where we our call to action is for petitions on this, for the people of Tennessee or if this is happening in your town and we don't know, because I'll be very honest, when I started digging into this, it's we know that this is not just happening in one place. Finding those places is very, I won't say very difficult, but it's not as easy as some other connections may be. I'm inclined to believe that is to a degree by design because we're talking about the people who get lost in the cracks all the time. We're talking about people who are not of means, people who are marginalized, people who get ignored. So this is one of those things where if you are, whether it's an, a, you're a resident of Tennessee and you want your representative to know how you feel about this, how you feel about what's being done to this town that's, that's chock full of Black folks or another town that you are, that's in your state or that you're aware of, text resist to 50409 to get the ball rolling on your petition, because this is something that 
it needs all of our voices. This is something that will need voices. And and if it's a matter of getting the word out there, we would love to have you on Resist by That's why we're here. That's why we're talking about this today. And that is why we're here. When I started digging, I believe the hashtag, if you want to follow more, if you're on Twitter, the hashtag is stand with Mason. So there are ways to find out not what's going on specifically in Mason, but marginalized people being steamrolled by whether it's the government or corporations or whatever, that's not new. So to the extent that we can help bring awareness to that and make sure that you, that your employees, I love to to reiterate that your officials work for you. Make sure that they hear what you think about this, that this is something that should not, we shouldn't be silent on. Mel, you just mentioned a really great point when you said employees, because I'm also thinking real employees of large corporations, many of which who are employed by marginalized people have a voice internally. And so maybe there's another angle that we can look at. I I wanted to add to that. Yes. I think at the end of the day, with almost all of our issues, it's accountability, right? So if the stakeholders of these corporations spoke up, if the employees at institutions would speak up, if voters speak up with their elected officials, I think there is a power in that organizing that I feel if issues aren't brought up, then there's lack of knowledge about it and these things can sort of squeak on by and happen. So I think as we can continue to think of intersections where this happens and with corporations and local governments, I think it's important to to make sure we're aware of it and to apply those pressures wherever we can. Absolutely. And just a reminder, the comptroller of Tennessee, his name is Jason Mumpower. Like we need to put names with this. Like who is, who are the faces of this? And no, and while he is not working alone, (laughs) he's not some lone wolf. He is the person who put his name on it. So we should remember that when we're discussing or remembering who's done what, that's where we are. And, And that this has not been done before. We saw it in Van Buren County. We saw it in Jellicoe. We saw it in Polk County where there were, when we're dealing how the difference when the town is, say, 95% white as opposed to a town that's 72% black. And frankly, Tennessee doesn't have the credit for us to say it, chalk it up to coincidence. If you want that type of benefit of the doubt, be better people. Not at $5 billion. And Kiana brought up a very good point. You know, before any of these decisions are made, There are scouting expeditions, community conversations. There's a lot of resources that go into making decisions like that. For like, you know, your local grocery store, Starbucks, these things happen. So for a plant at this scale and size, for a corporation that's as global as Ford is, no, this research has been done, these conversations have been had. To think that it's a coincidence is, uh, I learned a phrase from Dr. Roxanne Gay this weekend, that's a, it's a pity to have such limited imagination if you honestly think that that's the case that's happening here. And so I think, yes, the call is for us to call it out and help more folks get involved in that. And again, we, we're dealing, this is not a, a, count, a, a town that started struggling last year. 20 years, 20 years, Jason Mumpower and his president, press, predecessors saw this town struggle. But here we are now where there's a benefit to them. It's like, oh yeah, no, we're, we're going to help these folks out. It doesn't sound right. It just sounds a little fishy. Speaking of fishy, we're going to shift a little bit with off, off topic news, but just to close it out with good news. New York has the first Amazon union. ALU. 
Yes, here we are. It was one of those kind of slow moving stories that could have easily, you know, you remember, I, I, I definitely remembered Amazon being terrible and Amazon being terrible to someone specifically and, and, and the attempts to, to get a union together. But then there was Chris Smalls, who is now the president of this union. He's there because Amazon bet on basically him not being able to get the job done, bet on them not being able to get the job done and wanted him to be the face because they decided he wasn't charismatic, he wasn't articulate, and they would be able to just kind of steamroll him, speaking of steamrolling, and they were not able to. So now we're dealing with the first Amazon union and it's in New York City. Lord, we got we've, New York is another thing to brag over, but whatever, we'll take it. We'll take it. One good point, and this is something you mentioned earlier, and I think Athena did as well. One fact is like one in five workers in uh, New York are represented by unions. So labor is a big thing in New York. And the second point is that the power that happens when you don't just have an ally, right? But you have someone said accomplice. I, for the last several years, have been calling that type of person in one's life a co-conspirator, someone who conspires with you to be your highest self. Did I, I, I joked the other day that my Twitter account turned into a Chris Smalls a Stan account, but like someone was conspiring with him, right, in concert with him to see this through. And I think that's just an amazing example of someone who sees the power that he had and didn't try to take it away from him, didn't try to put someone they thought was better that was more poised or whatever it was, but that just said, he is a voice of the people. He was a worker. He stands in unison with them. He is them. And he is the best person to, to carry this through. And I think that it was just a, a really a highlighted, a really great example of what happens when your allies become your accomplice, become your co-conspirator in helping you. And that is like, that was like, for me, like truly defined as we saw that uh, at the end of this week. And I think that's one of the things I, I appreciate so much uh, about Chris Small specifically, but just, it's something that I've noticed, particularly among people who fall on my side of things are my, kind of more aligned with my views and how we have this need for all the boxes to be ticked. You have to be poised. You have to have these letters. You have to have this these this type of cosign. Chris Smalls, he was not that. And we need to recognize the value of that because there are a lot of people who do not align with me who saw that, who, who know that even when the messaging is rough, when a person is effective, when a person is an effective speaker, when they're an effective leader, capitalize on that. And in, in as much as you're, you talk to the people, you talk to the person or use the person who can reach the people. And he is someone who was absolutely up to the task. And I hope that's something that more of us realize. Poise is great. Being articulate is great. But that is not always an indicator of effectiveness. That's not always an indicator of intelligence. That's not always an indicator of ability. And that's something that we really, really need to take to heart and consider how when we're looking for the people who represent us, when we're looking for people to get the job done, like what are we looking for? And are those things superficial? Like how much of it is is of actual value to us? Like how do you think about who is up to task to do a job, right? And if you've got a, a metric or a scorecard by which you are so rigid 
you will miss out on Chris Smalls. You will absolutely miss out on Chris Moss, who can be as effective, but maybe not have fit that rigid sort of checkbox that sh- that you had set out for the last ten years. So it kept out the Chris Malls and the Mel's and the Athenas and the Kianas and the Christines, right? Because we didn't fit some neat little checkbox, but we could have actually done the job. So it's really about like how do you get rid of that checkbox? How do you open up? and really figure out like, what are the skills that we need, right? What's the impact that we wanna make? What is it that we need in order to get X job done? And it probably isn't gonna just be in the form of a person who went to Stanford who has this type of degree or anything, not to bash at friends who went to Stanford, but like literally it isn't all about just that. And so I think that's a highlight and it's not actually a, a different direction. It's like an, a perfect example of what do DNI initiatives need to do, right? And that's one of those core things in terms of systemic things that I think need to be challenged, right? How do you actually source talent and whether or not your algorithms and your systems actually reject a bunch of people that actually would do well in those jobs, in those companies. I wanted to add that uh, the word that you brought up earlier, community, I think really captures what this is demonstrating because we still have a lot of biases and restrictions and and thoughts about what a leader could look like in this country. (laughs) So I think you're right, Chris's appointment and his success here is bringing this to the forefront, but what you were talking about earlier, this idea of a co-conspirator or an accomplice, the group of people around him facilitated and supported this as well. And it's just as important as that, having that lightning rod, if you will, of a leader to, to get you there. But it's that community surrounding him and, and, and that support, I think, that will be more lasting as leaders come and go. So building that out is what the work of a lot of these organizing groups do. And I think, I know ResistBot, Mel, if you want to plug a little bit about that, we're trying to build out our community spaces too, because it's exactly this idea that we're going to want, we want this change. We're going to have to build this change together, but what will that look like? It's a long game. And, and how can we, yes. And in the meantime, how can we work on these systems that are in place, creating these checkboxes of what you should and shouldn't look like when you are in leadership roles? We won't all look the same. We won't all sound the same. We won't even have the same ideals sometimes. I One of the things I love about the ResistBot Telegram group is that we don't all, it's not an echo chamber. It's not an echo chamber where we all listen to or like agree with one thing. How do you do that? Recognize that there's still a larger common goal and move forward with that. Like continue and give the grace and space because there'll always be gaps, but also like give the grace and space needed when we're working alongside people with massive, massive differences from our own. So it's it's really looking at what community means. And community does not mean a bunch of people looking and sounding and talking a lot. That's a cult. That's a cult, guys. That's not that's not community. That's a cult. A C, but a different one. So that is that is where we are. Before we go, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and the time went way too fast. But we'll start with you, Kiana. Can you tell folks where they can find you? And if you want to and and whatever you'd like to shout out, this is your time. I would love everyone to follow me on Twitter. I've got really interesting ideas and post a lot of food pics of the things that I cook. And so you can find me on Twitter. Some work that I'm really passionate about is the work that I do with Pledge LA, which is an initiative between the mayor's office 
here in Los Angeles and the tech and investing ecosystem really to push systemic changes within equity and inclusion so that the face of our companies, both in the tech space and venture, look like those citizens of this region. And it's a a great example of a public-private partnership that I'm super proud to be a a part of and and the chair to really push a lot of those initiatives forward. Definitely be on the lookout of all the great work and really to amplify not just the work that we're doing here in Los Angeles with Pledge LA, but also to really think about how can this initiative be replicated and copied in other regions because we truly believe it's a model that is worth replicating. And we've seen such great impact and economic uh, development because of that work. So definitely be on the lookout for more initiatives being pushed out by our work at Pledge. Thank you so much. Can't wait to have you back. This has been amazing. So Athena, can you shout out and let people know where they can find you? Sure, I am on Twitter. Find me at AM Foulet there. And I, I get accused a lot of the times of focusing on some of the negatives, but I agree the Amazon labor union is a huge win this past week. And the announcement that Title 41 will be overturned. So the Biden administration is waking up and realizing that that racist closing of the southern border and inability for folks to claim asylum down there has been overturned. Another victory that'll happen in May. And so this week, we're going to have to count that as a W. Absolutely. And I also forgot to mention that there was finally an anti-lynching law. We finally, it only took, you know, 200 years. That's nice. So little wins. <laughs> they're, they're getting the point. Thanks, Athena. Thank you. And Christine, last but not least. Yes, I am always on the Twitters, but ending this conversation, I'm really motivated by it's the election energy that's starting to come my way from people outreaching for help with certain candidates. So I've been keeping busy. A lot of it may not be, you know, outwardly obvious, but, you know, where you'll find me is where you'll find candidates that I am looking forward to amplifying across the country in key sectors. And the reason I leave this uh, show with all of you inspired is because I hear a lot, we hear a lot about election fatigue. We hear a lot about this almost certain outcome that people think is coming our way in the midterms. But to me, I'm sorry, I'm an optimist, even though I sound pessimistic sometimes, I'm a realist optimist. <laughs> I I don't subscribe to that. And the examples of the Chris Smalls and the wins that we see in New York is an example of speak for yourself, I always say, right? If you feel that there is fatigue and people are tired and we can't win elections, why don't you step out of the way? So those of us who, as Kiana mentioned today, have been minoritized, find our power, find our space, and you know, mobilize with people who really do feel like we can get things done. So that's how I'll end it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And if for some reason you want to follow me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at the gates of Mal. The O is zero. I'm talking about ResistBot stuff. I'm talking about pop culture stuff and probably a lot of uh, other stuff, but it's great. It's fun. And so you should follow me. So that wraps our show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to learn more about this or other open letters, other opportunities for you to get involved, go to resist.bot. You can learn about how to volunteer. You can learn about how to donate. And we would like to thank our new monthly donors. This week, we have Sydney from Salem, New Hampshire, uh, whose focus is LGBTQ plus issues. Thank you, Sydney. Alan from Paoli, Paoli, Pennsylvania. 
Mike from El Portal, Florida, and Stephanie from Fort Worth, Texas. Thank all of you. Thank you so much for supporting what we're able to do. You can also, there is every week, we have a new blog post by Susan Stutz, and she's got a great article this week about diversity, equity, inclusion, and what's going on in Mason. So you'll want to be on the lookout for that. If you want to subscribe, if you want to make sure that you get a notification for our videos, we start every Sunday, 1 p.m. You want to get a a little notification from YouTube, subscribe to our YouTube channel, rs.bot slash video. We'll take you there. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, rs.bot slash pod, you can any streaming platform or podcasting platform, we're there. So just select and we'll be there for you. And that's it for us. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week. Take care. ResistBot Live originally airs as a live stream every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and is brought to you by the same folks behind the chatbot. If you haven't used ResistBot before, it's simple iPhone users, go to resist.bot on the web and tap the iMessage button. Non-iPhone users, open your text messaging app and compose a new text message. For the phone number, type 50409. In the message field, type resist or any of the keywords you heard on the show. You can also direct message ResistBot on Twitter or the Telegram app. For a printable keyword guide and more resources, visit our website at resist.bot. Our website has a complete guide to creating robust public policy or voter turnout campaigns, and we're here to support your activism. Email support at resist.bot if you need help getting started. ResistBot is a nonprofit social welfare organization built by volunteers and supported by your donations. You can donate on our website or email volunteer at resist.bot if you want to join our team. ResistBot Live is moderated by Melanie Dion. Our regular panel includes Athena Foulet, Christine Liu, Susan Stutz, and Dr. Joseph Kuhill. Thank you for listening.